As you know, for a lot of my sermons, I like to begin with a question. Uh, and the reason I like to begin with a question is because it just it gets us thinking. And not only that, when I ask a question and when it relates to the passage that we're going to look at, it gets you thinking at how the passage can apply to your life. And so it's just a simple way for us to apply what is in Scripture to our lives. And so this sermon is, like most of them, I'm going to ask you, what do you want? I actually think I asked this question before a sermon back in summer, because uh, it's an important question. It was part of the sermon series in Philippians. I can't remember which sermon. Uh, see, even I don't remember some of my sermons, uh, but that's not the point. What do you want? This question is important because what we want matters to us. Our desires matter to us, and often, or really most of the time in life, our desires determine how we live our life. This question is important. And the thing is, I think Jesus knows that. Jesus knows this question is important, and he asks this question in our passage today. But before we get there, turn to John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. John chapter 1, verse 35 says this, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, one quick note here. When it says John was standing with two of his disciples, this might be a little confusing. After all, we usually just think of Jesus having disciples, but don't be confused because this was a normal thing. For rabbis or teachers, rabbi just means teacher, it was a normal thing for them to have disciples or students. Uh, Any rabbi would have students, but John, he differs from other rabbis. He's not just concerned about sharing what he thinks is wisdom. He's not concerned about his own wisdom. John's whole purpose is to point others to the rabbi, right? The true teacher, the true rabbi that is Jesus. And he does as he did in chapter 1 earlier on. In verse 36 it says, He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Remember last week we talked about how John, he's all about pointing towards Jesus. Right? When, when asked the question who he was, John said, it doesn't matter who I am. What matters is who Christ is. And so, again, he constantly does this. He constantly points to Christ, and this is no exception. And then his two disciples in verse 37, they heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. The two disciples, when they heard John say this, saw him and they followed Jesus. John must have been doing something right. You know, John has been teaching them. He's been pointing them to someone else. And when they see Jesus, when they hear John say, look, it's the Lamb of God, they go and follow Jesus. They don't hesitate. No, it's all right. They go and follow Jesus with no hesitation. That kind of response is something I want us to all have. No hesitation. When Jesus says go, we go. When when Jesus has something to say, we say it. No hesitation. Let's call it decisive discipleship, right? Because too often we are indecisive. We let our doubts, we let our fears get in the way, and we, we just can't make a decision. Rather, we do. Our decision is, you know what, I'm not going to do it. Because I'm afraid, because I have my doubts, because I'm a flawed human being. 
But these disciples, they don't hesitate, and they follow Jesus. Verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now that question there can be translated as, What do you wish? What, what, are, what do you want? What do you want? And here's the thing, when Jesus asks this, don't you think he knows? So many times in Scripture, Jesus, he asks questions like this, uh, but he knows. He knows what they want. And look at what they say in the latter half of the verse. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So the immediate thing they want is to know where he's staying. Right? They, just, they just had the Lamb of God pointed out to them. They just had the Messiah pointed out to them. And this is what they're going to ask. Right? The Messiah, the one they've been expecting, the one to deliver them. This is what you ask. Where are you staying? could be translated, where do you abide? Where do you live? That's what you want to know? But I think Jesus knows that that's what was on their minds. And Jesus replies in verse 39, he said, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Come and you will see. When Jesus says this, uh, I don't think he has where he's staying in mind. I think Jesus has something by far more important in mind to show them. But they just want to know where he's staying. They just want to know where he is living. You know what, let's take a look at what Jesus knows. Let's take a look at what Jesus knows if you go to the next slide. All right, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Jesus knows. Go to Psalm chapter 139. 139 verses 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Go on to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. See, Jesus, he knows a whole lot. And when he asks them, what do you want? He knows. He knows they're about to ask him, well, where are you staying? He knows that. He knows everything that there is to know about them. He knows them more than they know themselves. And they just ask him, where are you staying? Jesus says, come and you will see again. He has something much more important in mind than where he is staying. As we're going to see, continue on in verses 40 and 41. 
One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Let's stop here for a second. What does Andrew do? The way the text talks about it is before actually following Jesus, where does he go? He goes to Simon to tell him that they have found the Messiah. What a response. He sees the Messiah. He doesn't think, you know what, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta follow him right now. He thinks, no, I gotta tell somebody else. I gotta tell my brother that I have found the Messiah, that we see Jesus. You and I both know sometimes we don't act like that. Sometimes we hesitate. Sometimes we don't go. Sometimes we don't seek people to tell about the Messiah. But Andrew's first instinct is to go and tell his brother. Verse 42, Andrew brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Jesus just looks at him. Jesus looks at him and knows. He knows who he is just by looking at him. That's the way the text presents it. You are Simon, the son of John, right? I'll translate it to Southern. I know your daddy, right? I know who your daddy is. You are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas. What Jesus does here is out of the norm. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, I know who your father is. I know he called you Simon, but I'm going to call you Cephas, right? Who does that? Who just goes around and says, uh, yeah, I know that's your name, but I'm going to call you something different? I guess some people do, right? You go around and call people BP. Um, but here, Jesus has a very good reason to do so. There's a few things that naming communicates, right? If you could go to the next slide. It communicates a few different things. It can communicate authority. Right, so think about God when he named Abram. Abram he named Abraham. God had this authority over Abraham and led Abraham in the way that he should go. And of course, Abraham meaning father of a multitude. Naming shows authority. And naming, it also shows a level of intimacy, right? As we know, fathers and mothers, when you name your children, it's not just something you do lightly. Right? You, you name them with a purpose in mind. You're, you're intentional. Well, I hope you're intentional about naming your kids. Uh, that might not always be the case. I've met some people with weird names. Uh, we won't go there, but you get my point. Usually, with a father and mother, you name your kid and it shows a level of intimacy. And naming, it also shows purpose God has in mind for someone. Right? Abraham, the father of a multitude, he was going to be the beginning of God's chosen people. God had a purpose in mind for Abraham. And here, with Simon, I think we have all three of these. I think when Jesus names him Cephas, it shows authority. It shows that Jesus has authority over who Simon will be. It also shows a level of intimacy. I don't think Jesus just names him to be kind of rude. I think it's because Jesus cares about him. He has this intimacy with Simon. And it shows purpose. Cephas, it's Aramaic for uh, stone. And then, of course, the Greek translation is Petros, also stone. And we translate it as Peter. 
the naming shows purpose God has in mind for him because Peter, as a stone, is going to become a part of that building, the body that is the church, one of the foundational rocks that are put on the building of the church. Peter was there. Jesus has purpose in mind for Peter. So I'm going to ask you again, what do you want? Jesus knew what they wanted. Jesus knows what Peter wanted. He, Jesus knows what was on his mind at the time. But Jesus looks at him and he names him. He rather renames him Peter. Stone, I have a purpose in mind for you are going to become a, an important part of this body of Christ. What do you want? Verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, this might seem not important to you, but Galilee, it, it is important. He decides to go back to the area that his hometown was in. Now, just for context, Galilee, if you could go to the next slide. Galilee was really that, that whole area in the top there, you see the yellow area. It is a poor area, okay? Galilee, most of the people there could barely afford sustenance to live. And what we know about Galilee is Nazareth is in Galilee. And who else? Let's take a look at verse 44. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, it's hard to see, but up in that yellow area to the right, up in the area to the right, you see Bethsaida. It's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Philip, Andrew, and Peter are from that area. You've got to understand the context. They come from an area where they hardly afford food just to live. See, being a fisherman was not lucrative. It didn't make you a lot of money. They're poor. Most of this area is poor, and it's been dominated by Rome, and that doesn't help. If you go to the next slide. And one thing you also see about the area of Galilee is that a lot of Jesus' ministry kind of takes place there. Not Nazareth, per se, because he had to leave, obviously, but a lot of Jesus' ministry happens there. There's a lot of healings. There's a lot of miracles. And the reason's pretty obvious. These people are oppressed. They're poor. There's an obvious need for Jesus to do what he did in that area. They're poor. They're suffering. They are oppressed. To take a look at further context, go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. That's not the right verse. Could you go to the next slide, please? All right. There we go. Actually, no, Luke first. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, that is Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are pressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Guess where he is? When he's 
saying this, when he's reading this, he's in Nazareth. Why is this important? At first, they appreciated what he had to say. They liked what he had to say. Why? Because they are the poor, they are the oppressed, they are the blind. They had an obvious need for Jesus. Could you go to the next slide? I need to get a clicker sometime. That would be good because uh, you can't read my mind. And so I, I'm seeing that would pose a problem. Matthew chapter 11. Does she read your mind, Paul? Can she do that? No? Okay. Anyway, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Well, wait a minute. Philip, Andrew, and Peter, they're from Bethsaida. I want you to think about how this changes your, your, your view of their discipleship. Their hometown, where they're from, their family, their friends, they all just reject Jesus. They're one of the few who comes to Jesus, repents, and follows him. They're alone. And yet they follow Jesus. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. There's clearly a reputation of Nazareth. And Jesus, in verse 47, He saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Deceit. Jesus just takes a look at him coming towards him. He takes a look at Nathaniel coming towards him and he knows. Jesus knows what he said without actually having heard what he said. And look at Nathaniel's response. Nathaniel said to him in verse 48, How do you know me? How do you know me? Or you would think he would say, How do you know what I said? Because he said something. But he asks, how do you know me? Which actually makes a lot of sense. Think about this. If somebody knew what you said without actually having heard it, he probably knows, they probably know a lot more than that. Nathaniel knows Jesus knows exactly who he is. And Jesus answers him in verse 48, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, uh, seeing him under the fig tree can be taken a few different ways. It could just mean I literally saw you. Under a fig tree, some people take it that way. Some people also take being under a fig tree to represent prosperity, right? So maybe Jesus just knew that Nathaniel was prosperous before having met him. The last thing is it might represent, the fig tree might represent the coming of the Messianic era. Now, all you need to know about the Messianic era is just the time when the Messiah would come, Messianic era. And you can kind of see, I'm not going to go over those right now, but that's where the passages it comes from and people take it um, But regardless, in this passage, Jesus just looks at him and knows. He looks at him and knows exactly who he is. And Nathanael responds as I think we all would in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. You are the Son of God. 
Why does Nathaniel say this? Because there's no explanation that would suffice other than him being the Son of God. This is miraculous. Nobody just knows someone before having met them. Nobody just knows what somebody says without having hearing it. But Jesus does. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him in verse 50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel's amazed that he just knows him. And Jesus says, you know what? You're going to see greater things. You're going to see heaven opened up. Heaven itself opened up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that communicates a few different things. One, Jesus has a constant connection with God. Two, Jesus reveals God. Right? After all, he opens up heaven. Nathaniel's just amazed that he knows him. But Jesus is saying, you know what? There's so much more. There's so much more I could show you. There's so much more that you could know. I'm going to open up heaven to you that you can see God himself. What do you want? Jesus knew exactly what the disciples wanted at the time. He knew what they wanted was so small in comparison to what he could offer them. And here's the thing, Jesus, he knows what we want. He knows what we want and he can take us to something better. Jesus knows who we are and he can mold us into someone better. So as you consider what you want, uh, don't limit yourself. Don't limit what Jesus can actually offer you. He can offer you so much. And if you want to see that, if you want to see what he offers, you can come as we stand and sing.